this is the, the, the ending of the quote that really sealed it for me. To that extent, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man. Welcome to the From Quarantine podcast, a weekly dose of dry humor from two Americans living in the heart of Europe. Hosted by January Newbanks and Tassie Gibson. Hello, hello. Hello. How are you guys? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Um, I like hearing so many voices when I say hello. So we are back with Dan. And Dan, you you are talking to us about the Black Death again because it wasn't Black enough or Death enough (laughs) (laughs) last time. So well, we didn't um, get to reactions yet. I mean, we just heard about like what it's yeah. like to be a medieval person. Yeah. Now we get to the yeah. good stuff. And I apologize. I apologize to everyone for episode one. I tried to compound just so much human misery in, in one go, but uh yeah, it's gonna get darker. <laughs> so um hide the rope darker. and strap on in. Yeah, hold on to your butts, everyone. Dan Schmidt's bringing us the black death. Oh, I want that to be like a slogan that I live and die by. It's a, it's gonna get darker. <laughs> uh, so Dan, let's just jump right in and do this. Um, yeah. Talk to us about the Black Death. So we, yeah, last week or last episode, we uh, talked about what was happening, what society was going through, what it looked like in the mid um, medieval times. So now. What's going on? Tell us where we are. What are people doing? Okay, so the Black Death hits in 1347, 48, depending on where you are in Europe, and lasts till about 1353. And so, yeah, reactions vary everywhere, but I'm going to just kind of summarize a little bit. If you were rich, you would run away, and flight was seen as a really, uh, you know, a good option because nobody knew what to do, and the, the, the miasma theory... Uh, postulates or postulates that it's uh, corrupted air that gives it to you. So head on up to the mountains, but only if you could afford it, of course. And rural areas were not necessarily safer. Um, the death rates sometimes are even worse when it goes to more rural areas. People, congregations like in Norway would go up and build communities up in the mountains and they would be absolutely wiped out. Oh, no. um, yeah, depending on how religious it was, some people stayed. Because if you believe that this is sent from God as a punishment for your sins, you would stay because it's not contagious. And obviously those places suffered very heavily. Florence was uh, mm-hmm. 55% plus death rate. Um, yeah, to try to prevent it, you might get super religious. So keep in mind the medieval mindset is wholly religious, comprehensively religious. So things like you'd go to your priest and confess uh, you go on a pilgrimage to your site. Um, you fast. You maybe even if you had some cash, you might pay for a special mass, which is a Catholic thing where they basically have mass for you. And uh, fasting, obviously. But what you see is really interesting. You see pilgrimages are pr- fairly common. If you had a, a few extra bucks, you might go to a local holy site. But in this case, you see pilgrimages on hands and knees. So it's like super pilgrimage. Um, and so that's it like you're happen. moving from the from the Chaucer era, because whenever I think of pilgrimage, I always think of, you know, like telling dirty jokes and like we're all <laughs> walking and drinking <laughs> together. So, um, yeah. So it was moving more towards like an actual religious deep experience. I mean, pilgrimages were always pretty religious and deep. I think Chaucer is, you know, he's obviously trying to pitch a book. So he's throwing a lot of dirty stuff. But what we do know from the evidence is that people were like hyper pious, more pious okay. than would be. Um, yeah, funny when, enough, I've got, I've got some. Is this when, um, like the hair shirts with the monks, the self-flagellation, like, is this when this starts or is this just when it kind of explodes? Hmm. We'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about flagellants, but there were always people who liked to be a little bit more kind of pain inducing uh, with Hmm. like the Franciscans who liked to beg. And I don't think hair shirts started here, but the flagellants when they come kind of very early on and then grow to like this immense kind of, 
large body of people all throughout Europe, um, they like to wear those, which hair shirts are just like, that's like flea heaven, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're wearing a hair <laughs> shirt, you're basically asking to get it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, religious responses were very common. And one of the things um, that you see in the sources is a lot of detailing about um, bad behavior. So sex, drinking, murder, all that stuff like that. And not so much about the supernatural kind of responses. And that's because obviously bad news makes good news, or if it bleeds, it leads. So mm -hmm. a lot of historians think that pe most people were fairly religious and some people went nuts. But of course, you know, 90% of what's going to get written down is all of the, you know, the sexual violence stuff that happens. So right. the religious response is a really good preventive way. And it, the thing about religion and medicine is that it's free. So confession is free. Fasting is free. Uh, praying is free, all that stuff. So pilgrimages cost some money, special masses cost money and stuff like that. But um, so everyone can do it. You didn't need to pay for that sort of stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. anything you did with a doctor, so bloodletting would be used for prevention and treatment, but that costs money. People couldn't always afford that. What you might do for the poor is go to a local wise woman in your village who might have some herbal remedies, or she may even have um, some spells or incantations or a charm and mm -hmm. supernatural life that we would consider maybe slightly pagan really moved alongside traditional Christian beliefs at the time. So people would go to church, but then they might also visit a woman who might have a spell or something like that. And those kind of ran parallel to each other. But what you really need um, is flea powder, yeah? <laughs> what you really need is a hazmat suit. And uh, yeah. And what you really need is a bath would actually be pretty good. Although I don't know how well that would protect you. Definitely. Uh, but people avoided baths because they thought it opened up your pores. Um, yeah, that's so yeah. fun. Um, because of miasma was the reigning theory throughout all this. Even the astrology that we talked about in episode one, so the alignment of the stars, which created a noxious, um, toxic air. Which yeah, that's the one of my death, favorite theories. Yeah. Yeah. But even that, the astrology is related to miasma. So God and miasma are the two reigning theories. And so one guy named John Cole in England uh, thought that, okay, the guys in Paris are talking about bad air. So we said you can contract, contradict bad air or cancel it out by ingesting bad air, more of it. So he advised people to go stick their heads in latrines, which they did. Oh, God. You might see people inhaling deeply out of toilets. And these aren't just like one-off toilets. Take the worst take the worst festival toilet you've seen, multiply it by about 50, mm. and stick your face in it. Yeah. This, is, this is like old-fashioned homeopathy, right? Like, just... <laughs> Essential right? oils are, are <laughs> a legitimate type of, of uh, medicine, um, So yeah, people, people did the opposite. So people inhaled bad things, but they also very commonly see people walking around with bags of herbs if they could afford them, if they could get them inhaling from those, filling their house with smoke. Um, and I read that this is where, where when we get the image of like the bird beaked mask of the... Um, medieval doctors that the reason why they had that bit of a bird beak mask was because they had um yeah herbs or something to prevent smell in that in that satchel hanging from the mask which yeah. i thought was really interesting yeah the bird birds are were thought to be immune from diseases they were thought to be almost kind of like supernatural creatures and a Where little bit in that sense, but that? definitely immune from diseases yeah but <laughs> that's true but the wearing of the bird costume was in a sense in the embodiment of that bird. So the, yeah, I think the sticking of the herbs in the mask and the beak was just kind of like a, it was a more of a, a symptom or a, a, what am I thinking about? Yeah, it's more of a, just a, something that just happened as opposed mm -hmm. to deliberate. But yeah, the bird costume itself, they were thought to be really useful for surviving because they were like hazmat suits. They were, you'd have a very strong covering. You'd have a, a mask with, Goggles, you'd be basically sealed, hermetically sealed in that bird mm -hmm. costume, and therefore fleas might not get access to you. Hmm. Um, but yeah, people would really try to either uh, inhale scents that were in, uh, that were intense, so smoke or in, you know latrines or whatever, or block up their every hole in their house to try not to let any sort of air in. 
They would try to avoid bathing, exercise sex, because they thought that opened up your pores. Uh, so social distancing, medieval style. Um, <laughs> if you were a noble and you had a house of stone, that, that would be a little bit better in terms of um, rats who, like, who can easily get into wood. Um, and nobles died at about probably an average 35, 40% as opposed to 50% plus. And um, yeah, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of different ways to prevent. Um, there was also the idea of, of humors. So the humoral theory that you have four humors in your body and you have to balance that out. They did kind of, in a sense, try to apply bloodletting and purging. So purging is where they'd give you an emetic to make you vomit or something that would make you have diarrhea. So some of that was going on in terms of prevention. Fun. So did any of this actually help? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, did anything accidentally help or did they stumble across something that they were like, oh yeah, actually... Maybe I mean, we see the answer, that's a really good question. In terms of prevention, flight sometimes could help. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately, um, no, the only thing, I try to make a list of things that actually did help. Um, there's a myth that I haven't been able to support, which is that it happened during the 1665 outbreak, which is they killed like, 20,000 dogs and 100,000 cats. And that obviously wow. made things worse. Um, wow. But... Um, so the Pope consecrated, this is Pope Clement VI, consecrated the Rhone River in Avignon. And basically that allowed them to use that as a plague pit. Um, and to, you know, if you imagine this, this river and bodies being dumped into it, sometimes probably hundreds a day, and they're all kind of collecting where the river slows down. Ooh. Oh, God. That would actually be useful as far as prevention, because wild pigs and dogs would dig up mass graves that the, the um, authorities had dug. Um, mm -hmm. and drag the bodies out in the open. And that yeah. would not obviously be good for, I don't know if it would increase the black death with the flea population, but because those animals who would eat would actually die of the black death as well if they ate a mm -hmm. dead body that was infected with uh -huh. it. Uh, so yeah, consecrating the Rhone River, not horrible. Um, what else? Oh, sometimes people wouldn't touch food unless it had been quarantined for like a year. So there, there's evidence of people saying if food had been recently brought off a ship, they didn't touch that sort of stuff. Um, so they did have an awareness of an infection and contagion being passed even through food, not just people. Um, but the only, the only person that I have that actually survived the Black Death kind of deliberately was Pope Clement VI. So his doctor said, listen, do these things. Uh, quarantine yourself in your room, your papal kind of, you know, room that's probably all gilded and shit. Um, <laughs> have two bonfires going at all times, filling the room with smoke, and don't see anyone for like months and months and months. And Jeez. he survived the Black Death, whereas cardinals, bishops, pastors, monks, so nuns, might they all die died. lung cancer, though. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's I was right. So, say, people are complaining about wearing a mask. Tell them that's <laughs> what quarantine looks like. <laughs> that's right. So, so the, the 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 recipe for surviving the Black Death in the Middle Ages is a be a pope, have a be huge a ass palace, <laughs> uh, two two bonfires going at all times, and don't talk or see anyone for a year. And yeah, you'll survive. That, that's basically all that would work. Um, there is speculation that the smoke from fires in a home would keep the rats and fleas away. Mm -hmm. So that could uh -huh. be useful. Um, but again, you had, I mean, you think of a medieval home, even if it was made of stone, but anything peasant-ish would be wood at best. Um, you've got so much porous stuff going in there. Um, fires are expensive too. I mean, you don't have an unlimited supply of wood in places. So the answer to your question in terms of prevention is um, no, unless your city quarantined immediately there i'll get to some examples of of you know yeah. success stories but um the thing about yersinia pestis which is the black death is it's actually easily treatable with antibiotics it's hard to say because we don't have this version the versions that we have now if someone if you get you if you get the black death today the versions that are common in sometimes in asia or in the united states if you get it you're not going to die probably they will pump you full of powerful antibiotics and you live uh, it'd be interesting to see whether our antibiotics would affect this version of it. My suspicion is, yeah. Um, but remember, from last episode, we are coming off 
um, the end of the medieval climate anomaly. So there is less food. Okay. Things are getting colder mm. and you have a huge livestock die, die off. Right, People's right, right. caloric intake on the lower edges of society is really low. So people's immune systems are uh, semi-paralyzed. So this was mm-hmm. a perfect storm in that sense. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. So when they got the disease, how is it treated? Yeah, I think it was kind of every man for himself. We have lots of um, evidence that people, not necessarily at the beginning, but probably a couple months into the disease, you'd just be left. The treatment would be your family would abandon you. Your father and mother would abandon you. You'd wake up in an empty home, um, that sort of stuff. People, they'd leave. Wow. And even in situations like in um, Scandinavia, we have lots of reports, at least at the beginning, of people actually still visiting each other months and continuing on with society and paying respects, but we think that that kind of went away over time. Hey, they're doing but that now they, too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so if you got it, if you got it, you might go get blood let and have your blood let out. And we have actually have some. Um, we have a, a scholar by the name of John of Burgundy, and he writes kind of in the second wave. This is actually the first, after the first wave. And he writes as if a man who's probably. The style in which he writes is that he's treated and he successfully found the way to treat the Black Death. Um, he's got a lot of confidence. And his, con- his, his method is basically to bloodlet on certain sides of the body. So basically find the boobo, find the biggest boobo. So if your biggest boobo is on your right armpit, then expel blood from the lower right leg. If it's near your groin, it's like you expel blood from the area of where the infection is taking place. They thought it took place in your heart, your brain, or your liver. And it has to do with letting blood out at certain points laying on certain sides of your body. So bloodletting was pretty common. They would try to pop the buboes. Uh, and the buboes naturally popped on day five or six. But when they popped them in advance, um, apparently it cleared the room. Now, Clearing a room today, like you could fart and clear a room today, but this is the Middle Ages. Like you were smelling feces yeah. all the time. Like like you're used to bad smells. So something yeah. that could clear a room in the Middle Ages has to be absolutely dreadful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy. Yeah. Um, Boy. <laughs> other treatments, obviously, you might go to your priest and ask for your last rites. Um, I think you would just be, there, there weren't that many ways to treat it. I think people would just kind of made their distance. And if you survived, like 20% did, it would be an anomaly. Or remember, um, septicemic and pneumonic, you're dead within 24 hours-ish. Mm-hmm. So, and then um, bubonic a couple days. So. so so stop me if I'm getting ahead of us. But um, the last rites thing. So there were, it was important to people at this time to have like certain ceremony around death, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. Like getting, getting your last rites as a Catholic is, is just, that ensured your, your quicker ascension into heaven and resolved any unseen issue. You know, that one sin that you hope no one finds out about. And St. Peter, when you approach the pearly gates, kind of like, Oh, look at this terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, last rites was meant to deal with that. But also like the burial, like is important, like where you were buried and how you were buried and all of that kind of stuff, because like focus would have been because people's lifespans and lifestyle led to really hard circumstances. Focus would have been on the afterlife, like pretty hardcore, right? Like they... I mean, you spent your entire life preparing for your death at some point. Yeah. Like it was such a part of like the everyday thought process. Yeah, definitely. So getting the last rites would be really important. And we have evidence of some um, priests going from village to village. Uh, the first wave of priests went out and did the last rites and kind of heroically ministered to people, but they got off really quick. And the second and third wave did not. They holed up in their, um, in their yeah. chapels. I their the, sorry, I read that the Pope actually in the end said that anyone that died without the last rites like God knew the plague was there and that they would yeah. be fine, right? At but some it's point, interesting yeah. because you have mass yeah. graves at this point, right? So like people weren't getting buried. Um, no. Like their family members weren't getting buried um, because like the bodies were just piling up. I mean, like Tassie, you and I live near Kutnahora where there is like a famous ossuary and the story that go behind that there's also war involved in it not just plague but um is that the people would just throw the bodies over the wall um mm-hmm. 
And then, you know, like there was a monk that came along later and, and arranged the bones into the, the ossuary that's there now. Um, but I, it's just interesting, like as a, like as a family member, how would you feel about the fact that like your, your family members weren't getting their last rites? Like, I think that would affect the living, you know, more than like the people who are dying yeah, no. not getting my last rites. I've got a thought about that, but before that, just in most European countries, the popes or the local religious leaders, the archbishops, start just consecrating large, like large plots and fields and just saying mm-hmm. this is now holy ground instantaneously and people just start getting dumped in there. Does in that terms satisfy? Of like how you would feel, I mean, that meets the minute they say it's consecrated ground, I, I guess it, it qualifies. But mm-hmm. in to, to address your question, like, or your thought, um, I think if, if, if 50 to 70% of your society is falling ill and dying, um, then you're probably going to think this is God who's causing it anyway. So the idea of like Mm -hmm. where somebody's buried and how they exited, you know, that's in the context of God unleashing the end of the world on you. So I don't Uh know if people would be that worried about that. They'd be worried about- At that point, you're just like moving on. (laughs) A man for himself. Yeah, yeah. Don't you wish you could interview these people? Mm-hmm. So d- we know about like last rites. We know about consecrated areas, like how the the clergy is dealing with this. Does everyone has have a religious response to this? Is there another response? Yeah, I would like, I think there's a nice divide, at least uh, from the evidence we have between hyper-religiosity and weapons-grade carnality. So people either went straight to God or they went straight, you know, this is that time to party. And, uh, you know, God is unleashing, if God is unleashing his wrath on the world and ending everything and killing people by the truckload, then why not go out and fulfill all your carnal desires? This is it, baby. It's happening anyways. Mm -hmm. And so you have evidence of people, you know, at the beginning, not so much, but we we do have lots of evidence of people engaged in very sinful, naughty behavior. Uh, but then again, that always gets written down, whereas you're not going to write down everyone went to church. That's too boring. Uh, so but one but thing that happened- funny little cults, right? Because I know that in uh, the Czech lands, there was one they were called like the Adam Adamites or something. And yeah, they would just dance naked and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> naked yeah. as Adam. Well, yeah, there, there were, they were. But the big one in you might hear about it is called the Flagell and um, they were a group of people that sprung up all over Europe and they coalesced into a movement with their own priests and they scared the local authorities and they scared the Pope. So what these guys were is hyper-religious devotees who would strip down naked except for maybe a little loincloth and they would beat themselves with whips throughout town carrying a cross and they would bleed. Their goal was to bleed a tremendous lot to attempt to atone for the sins of mankind. So they're trying to get oh God's God. attention, just like prayer and fasting. And these appeared in France, in Germany, Netherlands, England, Italy. I wonder everywhere. about the thought process that leads up to this, this like, okay, guys, I got it. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> like a well, Dan I just, Brown novel. I know. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's very Templar. But I don't, I don't want to look at this and say, oh, how weird. I want to look at this and say, this is an exact symptom of what, how bad the Black Death was. And the question always in my mind is, what, how bad, what's the actual death percentage? Because you ladies are pretty agnostic. What would cause you to go out and do something like this? Is it 82%? Is it 89%? At what point does everyone dying that you act, if you're not dying, do you go out and beg some unseen force for mercy? Um, I really can't and I imagine think, myself thinking that that, I mean, I think come I would on, just Ajay, think that 90, the planet has it in for us. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, I think I would just be yeah, like, so, well, we had a good run. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe there's that's a, just there's like, a great, sorry. There's a great quote from one chronicler who says they use whips to strike themselves until their bodies were bruised and swollen and blood rained down, splattering the wall nearby. I gotta tell you, I just don't have the stomach for that. Like, it could be 98% of everybody I know and love falling dead around me, and I still would not go to that place. Not because it's weird. (laughs) Not because I don't understand where they're coming from, you know, like in the atonement of it, but just because, like... I don't have it in me. 
But these guys were, were really interesting in the sense that they, again, they became kind of their own self-sustaining movement. Um, they were really, they were kind of half um, Fifty Shades of Grey and half performance art. Um, they would lay, they would go into a public town and lay in the shape of a cross and beat themselves. Um, they would wear hair shirts, as we talked to earlier, um, which was kind of like steel wool, kind of infected with fleas. They, one time they have one group that carried around a dead child and they kept trying to resurrect oh. and therefore other children, oh children were sucked into this, like seven, eight year old children were walking around beating themselves. And so they became such a threat to the social order and to the Catholic order. So the threat to yeah. obviously the, the natural kind of political and religious order that, um, that the Pope issued a cap, uh, papal bull to condemn them in 1350 and but people it was really attractive because if if this breaks out the church provides no solution everyone is dying you're going to go to some other solution and the flagellant said the solution is to bleed on behalf of society to get god's attention and to apologize for sin i don't know Um, i feel like that's a really tough missionary cell right there like i don't know i don't know how well, I don't know what percentage of people actually did this. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you don't have like an exact number, but like very enough to get a palpable and enough that it was a pan-European movement, which is weird. How how does somebody in Italy communicate with someone in the Netherlands about this? Unless someone hears a story, and this might be kind of in a sense a, mo- a moral panic or a mass panic situation, but that happened and it got everyone's attention. But again if it bleeds, it leads. We have probably mm-hmm. have a lot of records about these guys because it is so fantastical. So the exception in a sense proves that this probably didn't happen that much. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have any firm numbers, but what yeah. I did want to say is, is in addition to the flagellants and the religious response, we actually have um, across Europe, a lot of examples of, of religious people being attacked. So um, the Cardinal Legate in Rome, so a really high ranking Cardinal, was riding out one day to kind of like wave at people, you know how they do that royal wave, but it's kind of like, I have more money than you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some guy pulls out a crossbow and shoots him in the head oh. and he races back and he's got a, he's still got a, a crossbow bolt inside of his red kind of Cardinal hat. And <laughs> after that, he only goes out wearing um, priestly body armor, <laughs> like basically <laughs> underneath his priestly clothes. Um, in England, you have anti-clericalism everywhere with attacks on abbeys and monks where so they try to burn it down. They they attack bishops. Which are so why are they doing this? Uh, like they're, they're mad that like, they're not they're, doing their job? I think it comes from you devote your life to this institution that promises to keep you safe mm-hmm. um, and promises to have the answers six, eight months, 12 months, 24 months into an ongoing pandemic and people are still dying. Um, you and, and these people, by the way, the Catholic Church during the Black Death is getting incredibly wealthier because pe- uh-huh. rich people are leaving them all of their money because they're hoping yeah. to get some time off purgatory. Mm. So it's, it's number one, once the Jews and the normal scapegoats are out, you need someone new to blame. It's the yeah. fact that the Catholic Church is wealthy and they weren't, and just generalized anger at this institution. You put all of your hope in having nothing to say in terms of a global pandemic. What mm-hmm. I find interesting is like two modern parallels to this. Like I would say the fact that um, <laughs> a lot of people don't want to listen to science, and so they do things like rub bleach on their bodies or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like do these ridiculous things, which also like hurt and scar and maim. Um, I think can maybe that that desperation that you're talking about, Dan, you can see that that modern parallel in people doing ridiculous things. Yeah, like rolling um, up on like a government building with giant guns demanding freedom to not stay home. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking physical, but yeah. And then also that parallel of what you were just saying about the anti-religious, like it, I would say that that's an anti-institutional mm-hmm. sentiment that um, which you are also right seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, with COVID right now, we're seeing, you know, lower mortality than you know, uh, uh, expected. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, imagine turn that up to 10% or 20%. 
um, not even anywhere near the 50, 60, 70 percent the Black Death produced. And you're going to see people striking out at any institution they put faith in. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to attack teachers and lawyers and doctors because these are the people who have the a they have the they have the wealth. And, you know, in a sense, they're the captains of industry in terms of finance, but also they're the ones that are supposed to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah, that is an interesting parallel task because like the government is supposed to be like the the gatekeepers of health and safety for mm -hmm. for us now. So they're kind of the institution to strike out at, at this point. Yeah, I, I find it very fascinating that humans are unbelievably consistent even when mm -hmm. they appear to be so foreign yeah mm. that lizard brain's real strong <laughs> it is that's exactly what i was gonna say that fear will paralyze every other emotion and logic that, that governs you and takes over so mm -hmm. i remember when i was pregnant um getting coached by uh different people about birth um leading up to it and one of the things that they talked about was like trying to be as calm as possible because your fight or flight response, like once that triggers and you have like a fear response to what's happening, it can actually slow down and stop your labor, which can actually really complicate things. Um, and you can, you're, you're more likely to like have a complicated birth and more likely to hemorrhage things like this because it's uh Wow. That fear triggers and then your body just is like, I can't have this baby now. I need to protect it. Amazing. And then stops everything. Human. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dan, what's happening? All the people are dead. We're fighting against the church. <laughs> um, is there any sort of society? Like, what does everyday life look like? Yeah, I mean, I want to talk a lot of, about exceptions and fun stuff, which is all the chaotic stuff. But all right, general, tell me all the exceptions. Break, well, so, so in general, I don't want to overstate it, but society breaks down and then restores itself very quickly. Obviously, the nobility and the, the uh, aristocracy have a lot to lose and a lot to gain by restoring order. So the plague comes back every couple of years up until about the late 1600s. So society breaks down, falls apart, comes back. Things will change, which we can talk about at the end. But um, I, yeah, here's some interesting kind of things that break down um, with society. So lots of chroniclers are writing about, uh, one quote I love is, however, the greatest cause of grief was provided by the behavior of women. So it's not a complete breakdown of social order, people dying, being thrown into pits of the river. It's the fact that women's behavior, this male obsession with controlling women, um, you know, some chroniclers mentioned it, that, that women are running with foreigners and giving birth to bastards. Oh, uh, there's notes. How horrible. There's notes in the, I know. Um, it's, it's nuts. Uh, there's notes of, um, in the 1360s is interesting. They, they make comments about um, incest and they, they comment the fact that it was like the last time. So sometimes the second or third wave of Black Death, we have notes and they're like, oh, this is like two waves ago. They did this again. So, you know, again, is this one instance? Is this thousands of instances? We don't know. Uh, another comment um, from a scholar by the name of Johannes Noel and said, um, it's not only in the laity, so this is people who go to church who behave like this, the nuns in the convents also, neglecting their rules, abandon themselves to carnal lust and deem that by voluptuousness and excess, they will prolong their lives. So you have naughty- I know, reports of naughty nuns doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and then of you course- You know, that is parents interesting. Sorry, just to make a note here that is interesting because like when I was doing some research for this podcast, um, I just a, a quote from one of the historians on In Our Time kind of stuck, stood out to me um, where they were talking about like the just the outbreak of theft and extreme licentiousness because, you know, why not? Who's going to be around to catch me? I just do what yeah. I want. Um, and he made a comment about women um having fashions to show their asses in yes <laughs> so I, I started thinking about this <laughs> i started thinking about this because like 
Okay, so the heart symbol that we use now is just like an upside down ass, whatever. Um, but I was thinking about like, what is it about the male brain that is actually attracted to the ass? Because like women talk about being attracted to the ass, the men, they have the obsession, right? Um, uh, absolutely. I think this is another podcast, Jan. We need to talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But especially or, right now. Or a subscriber only episode. <laughs> but especially right now, it's such a like, the the ass is having a moment you could say um and then so i read like several different accounts of why this is but it seems that the male brain is attracted to the small waist and the large booty because the small waist means that the woman is not pregnant and the large hips that lead to an ample booty um that means that like they're they're less likely to have complications than childbirth. So your progeny actually has a better chance of survival if you have a woman who has broad hips and a big booty. Yeah, of course. Well, of course. <laughs> but anyway, if anybody needs like the reference to that, in case you can look this up, it's from a, the quote is from an evolutionary psychologist named Gordon G. Gallup Jr. Of the University of Albany. Awesome. <laughs> a lot of husbands are really happy to you now because I can quote that at their wife. <laughs> not my fault. It's evolution. It's evolution. Um, what I want to talk about really quick because you kind of mentioned it was merrymakers. So we have a lot of different weird evidence of people just going ballistic and dancing and drinking and singing, but actually for different reasons. So um, you have. Um, accounts of monks going past villages that were merrymaking and asked them, why are you all dancing and beating drums and singing, playing uh, flutes? And they said that they, they thought that this would keep it away. They actually thought it was a preventive way to stop the black death from spreading. Uh, other ones were blowing trumpets and dancing and say, and they, they did it uh, other villages because, you know, the world is over. So let's just yeah. party. Let's, let's See, those, those are my um, people, not the flagellators. Like, it's those people. Those are my people. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So lots of extreme responses. People were scapegoated, um, believing they were poisoned wells. Um, and then we'll get on to uh, other scapegoats a little bit later. But, um, yeah, lots of extreme responses. You can read about this stuff all day, and they're, they're varied across different regions, of course. So, Dan, what I found really interesting when I was listening actually to the same In Our Time podcast that you talked about, Jan, um, is that Pope um, Clement VI, I believe, he um, came out and said, hey, guys, stop blaming the Jews. Um, and I think that uh, we've all heard of pogroms and what, it, you know, how. Yeah, it seems to come off like pretty much any time anything happens in Europe. Right, right, Absolutely. right. That they definitely were scapegoats and that they were being blamed. But it's interesting that there was also this um, backlash to that. So what was happening? Who were the scapegoats? Who were people blaming? Um, were the Jews really taking the brunt of this? Yes, in terms of scapegoats. I mean, we don't know what happened in small villages. And, but in terms of larger communities, especially around Germany, I mean, they, Jews had gotten expelled from England in 1290. They got expelled from Paris in 1182, uh, although some came back to France. But if we're talking Central Europe, Jews uh, received the brunt. And strangely enough, even before the Black Death hit, some people tried, some communities tried to prevent um, uh, the Black Death by slaughtering or expelling, but in many times slaughtering their Jewish communities uh, from the get-go, as as in a sense, you, even be, even before it hit, which is just it absolutely blows my mind. Um, That's so they, weird. Yeah, one Franciscan friar said that the Jews planned to wipe out all the Christians with poison and poison wells and springs everywhere, and Jews confessed as much under torture. So it's like mm -hmm. we've got the evidence; we tortured them, and they confessed to a worldwide yeah. Jewish conspiracy. Um, but it doesn't seem like they could they, win because, like, they were either too clean and they weren't dying enough or they were dying more than the other, than the rest of the population. So then they were the yeah. cause of it. 
That's right. And you always got to ask yourself, what does money lending have to do with this? Because Jews were classical money lenders in many communities. That's the only job that they were allowed to do because usury was considered to be a sin. So let the Jews do it. Usury, by the way, is adding interest onto your loans. And so if a community, a lot of these spontaneous uprisings against the Jews, to me, has a lot, a lot less to do with religious or cultural intolerance, a lot to do with the fact that if 10% of the population knows these people money, amazing that there's an uprising to kill all of them so you don't have to pay them back. Oh, um, I, I'm, yeah, I yeah. see that connection in a yeah. lot of different situations. Uh-huh. Um, but the town of, of, of Basel in Germany, they built wooden houses and shoved them in there and burnt them alive. Oh, um, God. Lots um, in, in Cologne, the, sad, the really sad story is out of Cologne. So they basically became known as a... Um, um, kind of a refuge for the Jewish communities. They all flooded into Cologne. And eventually there became so many that the Christian population feared. Spies were kind of sent in as, you guys know what agent provocateurs are? No. Um, the government will sometimes do this. They will send in um, agents into different protest groups to kind of encourage them to do something illegal mm. and then catch them in the act. So these Christian spies infiltrated the Jewish community, tried to expose their plans, ratted them out. And they were, of course, slaughtered and tortured. Um, the, the total number, I've got a number for you here. So in German speaking countries alone, we'll never know the full amount, but 340 towns launched pogroms. Um, and that, if you think about that, 340 different pogroms, each with whatever, you know, how many hundreds or thousands died there. 80 Jewish communities across Europe were wiped off the map and ceased to exist. And in many cases, again, before the Black Death even went and that's not including what happened in France and Spain. Um, and um, we have some, you know, we have some good examples, like you said, Tassie in, in 1348, uh, Pope Clement VI basically said, um, the Jews are all dying too. This isn't their poisoning of the well. They are dying in just as many numbers. If you are blaming the Jews, he actually says you've been seduced by the devil. So thank you, Pope Clement. Um, maybe a little bit too late. You could have said that in 1347. Um, and then we have, you have outliers. You have um, the Duke Albert of uh, Austria in 1349, basically um, ordering protection for the Jews for a while until the pressure became too great. And then he rescinded that. But you do have some examples of European leaders protecting the Jews, hiding the Jews. Um, but it was they were the main scapegoats. And then I think after that, you didn't have anyone to blame. Um, and then minor scape- this, this like compuls- compulsory and um, it seems like we, we just can't control this thing inside us that needs to blame someone for what's happening. Like it can't just be, you know, like a, a disease that starts with bats in China it has to be like a Chinese disease like it can't be you know just a germ that comes through a flea like it's it has to be like the Jews or women or whoever else they want to blame yeah um there's a lot could be said on that Jan (laughs) I know I know this is a psychology podcast sorry no but the discussion for another resisting your I'm resisting your uh, your carrot to follow that that trail. I'm not going to do it. Um, so the we talked about the the bad and the ugly. Were there any good? Yeah, who are our heroes, Dan? Who are our heroes? Yeah, I mean, there's there's not a lot of uh, evidence for it. I'll, and can you can you guess why? We don't have a lot of physical evidence for all the heroes that that bravely, you know, supported those dying during the Black Death. It doesn't make a good story. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a great story, but they all died. Yeah. Like they literally, those first responders got wiped out. So we do have lots of evidence uh, or some evidence of, you know, priests and monks administering to the poor, taking care of them, priests going out to the villages. But you get that first wave and they do not return back. What you do have is an interesting, um, you, have a, a, you have a word called um, mendicant. 
And those are the orders like the Franciscans that were um, focused on or pledged to poverty and living very simply. And they had a kind of a, a resurrection during this time. Uh, so where all the priests, the second and third wave stayed home, um, these Franciscan friars and uh, would go out and actually treat people. So they got a big boost. They kept going out and obviously dying in large numbers, but they lived amongst the people and took care of them and would try to, in a sense, minister to them. So, yeah, some Franciscans from St. Francis, that order. You do have some guilds in Italy that open up orphanages and take care of needy widows. Um, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they had more money than they knew what to do with because um, people are dying. And so the, the guilds are getting richer because they're getting there's less people in the guild. Um, and then, I mean, there's a, there's a story of a town called Eym, E-Y-A-M in England, that, that got the Black Death. They self-quarantined and sent a message to their nearest villages saying, we will, not, we will not leave and we will kind of contain this as long as you just leave food for us. And they did. About half of the 500 people there died, but no one else got the Black Death around them. So they kind of took the brunt of it for everyone else. I read um, a BBC article about them and they interviewed the vicar that's still, that's living in they like do. the vicarage there. And it was lovely. It was a really interesting article. Yeah, but... Um, no, there's not a, a lot of the heroes um, go, have gone unseen effectively. Um, and you wouldn't expect a lot of heroes when everything breaks down, or at least the evidence to come through. Mm -hmm. But we do have some. To me, it's those Franciscan friars who continue to go out and keep contact, bring news, probably bring food um, in the midst of the crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and what was happening on the edges? Are there some fringe things happening? uh outliers things that are yeah countries that are, or regions that are not experiencing this in the same way yeah i mean um so iceland misses the black death at least the first wave uh, because there is a ship that is going from reykjavik back to um uh, they went to bergen to pick up goods from norway and is headed back and right as they're about to leave they notice a, a little mini outbreak of the black death and so the ship doesn't go and iceland does not catch the black death at all they missed the whole thing because that one little ship left on a certain day so it was a, a one-off they got hit hard on the second and third wave um, milan maybe had death rates of about 15 20 percent on the first wave and got smashed the second wave because they were headed by a despot and a certain family. All, so there was no Italy back then, they were all city-states, but they went into complete lockdown quarantine and basically survived really well. And then the city of Nuremberg had incredible levels of sanitation. So the streets were paved, they were clean, they had like garbage collections all the time, animals were banned from the streets, and they survived with a very low um, mortality rate. But the interesting one to me, and I learned this the other day, and it blew my mind. So Poland, if you look at middle, look at Black Death maps, and sometimes you will see on a lot of them, this big kind of blank spot where Poland is, or traditional Poland in the, in the 14th century. And it was believed that Poland skipped the Black Death by and large. Like it was like this hole in the center of Europe where the Black Death just kind of bypassed. So either that's they quarantine really well or natural resistance. And there's just endless theories about you know, why we don't have any evidence of anything bad coming out of Poland. And a couple of years ago, some historians looked into this really hard and they came to a, a much kind of darker conclusion, which is the fact that Poland probably, but we don't have the evidence, um, suffered the Black Death just as bad as everyone else. But when the communists took over in 1947, they destroyed all of the evidence of the Black Death's impact on Poland. Do you girls oh want to guess why? Do you want to guess why they would do that? Because it seems such an unusual thing to do. Why would you destroy 700-year-old records? I don't know. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. Okay, so follow me here, and this, this will blow your mind. Um, so after the Black Death, a lot of these countries, the, the, the lower classes, the peasants, pulled themselves up and took on kind of the ruling leaders. And you have uh, peasant uprisings and demands for higher wages and all sorts of concessions made. And according to communist orthodoxy, that shouldn't happen as a result of a black death. That should happen on the peasants or the proletariat's backs alone. So the fact that it took a worldwide pandemic to cause the lower classes to oh rise my God. up went against communist orthodoxy. So they destroyed the evidence of the black death. So we don't know what happened. Ugh. That's crazy.
That is Isn't crazy. That amazing. That is amazing. History. History uh, is wild. It is wild. So, yeah. Um, what were some of the changes to the actual like town and city life? So this is more short-term changes, but wages went up because there were less laborers. So if you are a person who worked for almost nothing, you could go back and say, hmm, you don't have a lot of people to work your villa or your lordly estate. So um, I'm going to charge more. And prices went up by about 40% over the next decade or two and then would return to normal rates after that. So yeah, you'd make more money if you survived. Um, basic goods prices went up. So food, there was, you know, obviously people weren't farming during this time, so food was scarce. So the price on food went up, but prices on luxury goods went way down. So you might have a dope new hat uh, and not enough bread, but you could afford luxury goods. There was too much of them and not enough people to buy them. Uh, so certain spices you might have more of, but not as much of the basic necessities. Um, so yeah, lots of mini changes. Um, kind of the whole the whole feudal society of serfdom where you would be indentured to a lord who you would have to grow food for kind of was already dying, but slowly died out. Um, you know, people begin to, well, like I mentioned earlier, there were revolts um, in France. It was 1358. So right off the back death, a huge peasant revolt. And then in England in 1381, and these revolts were kind of, the masses awakening to a new consciousness of their own power, of their own authority, and then if they organize, they might have kind of like more power to lean on the, the aristocracy. So in a sense, the beginning of kind of unionized labor, more guilds pop up. So unionized labor kind of already existed, but not so much for the unskilled. Um, women join the workforce in places, so you have a lower birth rate. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the more interesting things is that uh, merchants, so you have the landed elite, you have the peasants, and then you have this merchant class, and they start to have a lot more power. Um, in, in some places, the landed elite have to marry in with the merchants. So you have this mixing of the merchant class, and they buy up a lot of cheap land, and they start living like these lords. And um, so you have, in a sense, a a middle upper middle class emerging section that starts to live and to operate in the higher circles. So those are some of the short-term impacts of the Black Death. So wrapping things up a little bit, can this be considered a turning point? Was it the most significant turning point? Um, in human history, man, that is such a hard question. Um, so let's think about it. I, I think in terms of why is the Black Death the turning point for me? It wasn't just the amount of death and destruction. Um, I mean, again, repeat something we said in the first episode. This is largely the worst thing that has ever happened to Europe with the more evidence we have of a town, the higher the death rate goes. So traditionally, we've said 20, 30, 40% death rate most historians today who are looking who are in the very front lines of researching this are saying 50 to 60 percent. Um, to me, it's the impact on people's minds regarding the church. The mm. fact that people start to distrust the church, the fact that people start to question why they couldn't uh, solve the problem is to me the really key uh, thing to remember from the Black Death. The fact that the church was powerless not just for the 1347 Black Death, but also reoccurring pandemics. So you're sitting through pandemic number six, mm -hmm. hearing the stories about your great-grandfather's pandemic, and the church still has nothing to say about it. And on top of that, the church is telling you that it's your own wickedness, that you're the reason for it. And you might believe that for a couple months and then beat yourself with a whip occasionally, but after a while, you're going to think, no, the church has gotten richer through this because all the rich people who are depleting them all their, their money it's already corrupt and they're selling indulgences. And then mm -hmm. all of a sudden you cannot stop this thing that's ripping us. And some historians actually say that the reformation that begins in 1517 with Martin Luther, that tears the church apart and begins kind of this process of the Renaissance, although it was already going on, um, is really rooted in the black death. And so mm -hmm. that, that, that's something that's new to me. I've, I've taught this for years and I've never really connected but they're not that many generations apart. We're talking 150 years between the two, but, mm -hmm. but the, the anger and the disgust is welling up during this time. 
And I'd like to read one quote from a story and it kind of uh, encapsulates what um, uh, my thoughts on this. And this is from Barbara Tuckman, who wrote a book called The Distant Mirror, which is a really famous book in the 14th century. Very readable audiobook is great too. But she said, survivors of the plague, finding themselves neither destroyed nor improved, could discover no divine purpose in the pain they had suffered. God's purposes were usually mysterious, but this scourge had been too terrible to accept without questioning. If a disaster of such magnitude, the most lethal ever known, was a mere wanton act of God or perhaps not God's work at all, then the absolutes of a fixed order were loosed from their moorings. Minds that opened to admit these questions could never be shut again. Once people envisioned the possibility of a change in the fixed order of society, the end of an age of submission came in sight. The turn to individual conscience lay ahead. And this is the, the, the ending of the quote that really sealed it for me. To that extent, the Black Death may have been the unrecognized beginning of modern man. Wow. So if we take everything about modern society in the Renaissance, which is individuality, mm-hmm. humanism, self-questioning, consideration, enlightenment, education, reading, um, mm-hmm. the, um, the you know, scientific method, all of that to an extent, or maybe to a great extent, can be found in the, what is the breaking of man's consciousness during the Black Death in their social order that was so fixed ever since, you know, maybe around the year 500, fixed in kind of this Catholic medieval worldview was broken by the Black Death and mm-hmm. man was now free to explore new distant horizons. That's incredible. Oh, interesting. Really interesting. Gosh, my brain is itching. This is so good. <laughs> so thanks, ladies. I appreciate it. I mean, obviously, there, this, there are hundreds of hours of things we could say yeah. about this. So um, yeah, just a few shout outs. Um, if you really liked what you heard today, uh, A Distant Mirror from Barbara Tuckman is, uh, is an excellent uh, book to pick up. And, um, you know, lots of other books to, to explore your kind of black death fascination. Um, and, uh, and we'll yeah. put those in the show notes as well so that you can reference them later. Excellent. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being back here. And next time we see you, we won't be talking about the black death. We will have moved forward to da, 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 da. I think we're moving on to smallpox. We'll be the next thing we're going to go to. (laughs) This is really uplifting (laughs) endeavor. But no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to make these connections and see how humans are humans. Um, I can't wait to get into smallpox because we talked about the vaccine yeah um on our yeah, podcast yeah. so that's gonna smallpox be nice has got a good story to it yeah it's got yeah. a nice like loop whereas the black death um doesn't have necessarily yeah yeah before though we go ladies can i give a plug for my charity yes, sure please cool if you liked what you heard um obviously a lot of work and research goes into these episodes if you liked what you heard if you could chuck a small donation to refugee action which is a charity which helps uh, refugees who've been displaced and who are now suffering twice as much um, because of COVID-19 uh, in England sets them up with um, hopefully getting them jobs settled and basic necessities. So it's refugee action and they're a great charity if you can give them a small donation. Is that dot um, UK dot what? Uh, refugee dot dash action dot co dot UK. Uh-huh. If you Google refugee action, that'll be, that'll be, um, way to go okay well thanks so much dan for talking to us tonight it was really well i don't want to say it's fun because that's weird but it was a really oh it was definitely fun it was a really cool conversation and i think that yeah it's it's always really fun to like listen to different perspectives and so cool to have an actual history teacher talking to us about it because Tassie and I can just go on and on about like all the articles we read but neither one of us have a degree in this. Well, yes. I have some place to talk to someone about this. No, none of my friends want to hear any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always call me and Tassie. We're down for history talks. Definitely. Nice. Apparently not so much for psychology since I got shut down on that one but... <laughs> oh, no. It was just too juicy to follow. 
we'll do we'll do a whole episode on butts for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but the psychology comment was not about butts, but yeah, let's do it. Butts. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Good night. later. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this week's episode of From Quarantine. We are live on all platforms, so you can find us on everything from the big guys like Apple Podcasts and Spotify to your favorite podcast apps. You can get updates on our episodes on Instagram. Just search for From Quarantine, and you can find our full show notes on our website, quarantine.cz. We would love it if you would like and share our episodes with your friends. But if you could also take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would help us out tremendously. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by the coronavirus outbreak. Live together. Dialogue.